Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today is a, is a writer, art curator, and cannabis advocate. He smokes cannabis daily to control pain and spasms due to a spinal cord injury that has rendered him partially paralyzed. He has testified before committees of the Connecticut legislature over seven times over 14 years, urging passes of bills to legalize medical marijuana. His sixth and most recent book, Mindful Marijuana Smoking, Health Tips for the Cannabis Smoker, was published in 2022. Mark Bernstein, thank you, Sprunstein. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure to be here, Montel. Absolutely, sir. Let's talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what life was like before your accident. Um, basically, normal Long Island, New York City youth, um, lily white neighborhood all my life. I guess I was one of those privileged white persons. And um, I developed an appreciation and love of art. My hope in life was to become a New York City painter, moved to New York City for that reason, then promptly lost that interest. I began um, developing a more, let's say, spiritual outlook on life and decided that before one can, can perfect one's art, one must perfect one's life. So in accordance with that, I decided to start writing because all the paintings I had viewed in my life, and I've traveled the world, especially Europe, all the museums, never really changed my life, but books I have read have changed my life. So I decided I'm gonna write a book and change people's lives. And it's exactly my first book did, published in 1981. It was called Radical Vegetarianism. It was really about veganism, but back then not even vegetarians knew the word vegan, so we couldn't call it that. And then, my books after that were more um, refined versions of it. Sprout Garden, How to Grow Sprouts. Microgreen Garden, How to Grow Microgreens. Then I wrote a book about um, all those other drugs out there, recreational, that we don't necessarily think are going to do anybody any good. Crack, Coke, heroin. Now it's fentanyl out there, which is just at the... When, I, when that book was published, which was 2017, fentanyl was just arriving on the scene. Right. Then I wrote a book, fifth book was about death. I'm a really fun guy. And my sixth book, which was published four months ago, brings us right around now to Mindful Marijuana Smoking Health Tips for Cannabis Smokers. And when when was your car accident? Um, diving accident was 1990. I had already moved to Connecticut. I was employed at Connecticut College as an art curator and art librarian. And um, I dived off a footbridge into a river, didn't land right, wasn't any rock or anything there. It was just the surface of the water. Water can be very hard, bullets ricochet off of it. From 60 feet, it was enough to do a little damage. I uh, burst my T12 fracture, paralyzed below the waist, you say partially, which is say at the waist and below the knees. I walk with crutches. I use a wheelchair, in a wheelchair right now. Okay. And um, I've led a life otherwise very normally. And one of those reasons is because I've been able to avoid all those pharmaceutical drugs that other paraplegics resort to. Because from the very beginning, I did not use any pharmaceutical drugs. In 1990, I began using cannabis 
to suppress the spasms and alleviate the pain those accompanying that accompany the spasms. And because of that, I feel cannabis has not only I've been able to lead a normal life, not despite cannabis, but because of it, because it's enabled me to not have to resort to the pharmaceutical drugs. So I'm sorry, let me let me back up a little bit from because the first question I asked you was what was your life be like before your accident? Did you write your first book before your accident? Yes, that was nineteen eighty one. Okay. Yes. The second book, 1993, was after the accident, yes. Gotcha. So the first book, which was all about radical veganism. Exactly. Um, so. uh, you had already been down a path of health and wellness before your injury. Yes. I've been. Well, um, were you a cannabis enthusiast before your injury? I was a cannabis enthusiast from the 1960s when I was a high school student. I was the Woodstock generation. All my friends went to Woodstock. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And the and reason why, yes, reason why I, I, I discovered the use of cannabis for the spinal cord injury is because that's exactly what I was doing when I got out of the spinal cord injury ward and was home. I began smoking just once every evening after work with my girlfriend because I deserved it, right? Went through what you'd call a life's ordeal. And, um, and then I, every so often I would stop lay off of it. You know, there's a point, you know, my, my reason for loving cannabis is I like the high. Okay. If I didn't like the high, why would I use it? Why would I use it for my spinal cord injury? I could use the pharmaceutical drugs if I didn't like the high. Occasionally you get to a point where I don't get high anymore. So I lay off of it for a few weeks, a month. When I did that, I noticed spasms started returning. Went back to smoking once a day spasms disappeared. Began researching the, the subject. This is 1990. This is before there was an internet. I had to reread you know, re it in books. Robert Randall, who was the first licensed medical marijuana patient in the country, he petitioned the government for an IND program where he was able to get marijuana for his glaucoma because he felt it was the only thing that worked for him. He then began a, um, a small press, published books on the subject, bringing to light a lot of old literature, republishing it, making it anew. And I was able to, one of his books was about spinal cord injury and spasms and muscle, uh, muscle spasms and marijuana therapy. In that book, he reprinted the 1988 DEA hearings where several spinal cord injury, and multiple sclerosis patients went to Washington, 1988, to testify before the DEA judges how marijuana is helping them and nothing else was. And that's what probably, I think that's precipitated the Bush um, authorization of the studies that started at University of Mississippi, correct? Yes, yes, right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that uh, what you're talking about is pure fact. I mean, since then, you know, our government has and since then, since that was like, I guess, 1989, our government has authorized, they authorized originally it was 20 individuals who received cannabis from the University of Mississippi and have receiving it from the University of Mississippi to today. Four of them are still left alive. Um, and so every month for those who are tuning in and listening to this podcast, every single month, for now, close to the last 50 years, our government has literally 
been shipping out marijuana grown at the University of Mississippi to patients that are authorized to carry it anywhere they go. They can take it on airplanes. They can take it out of federal buildings. They can use it anywhere they want. It's actual official U.S. government cannabis. And this is from a government that will turn right around and claim that they know no medical efficacy, right? And the fact that our government is the one that funded the majority of the research that was going on in Israel at the time and, and around the world at the time, uh, not only the University of Mississippi, you know, the lies that have been really just espoused over time over the fact that there's no medical, no, no valid medical evidence. Bullshit. I mean, we know that for a fact. So uh, now, now, you know, um, you started down the path. I mean, now you continue the path to the day, I'm sure, right? The path being um, my creativity and my use of cannabis. Yeah. Use of cannabis, right? Yes. Absolutely. And how do you feel about the progress, though, that's been made across the United States when it comes to medical cannabis since you were, let's say, first began your advocacy? My advocacy began in 1997. That was, you have to remember, we go back, it was November 96 when California passed the referendum legalizing medical marijuana for the first time in the country. That was, that was what turned the tide on the war on drugs. During that well, next began to, began to began to turn some of the, the tide. Yes, yeah. drugs still to the day they are still incarcerating almost the same number of people today. With thirty eight states in the District of Columbia now having some sort of legal or or adult use passes already, there are still people being dragged out of their homes and thrown in jail for just silly ass little mm -hmm. cannabis mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, possession charges. But go ahead. In some states, right? Right. Yeah. So um, states that they have legal cannabis in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. In the state of California, you know, California, which you just said very clearly, California was, was a state that started the movement towards change. But even up until our current vice president was then attorney general, she arrested more people for basic yeah. cannabis, you know, possession charges than any of the previous attorney generals before her. So, right. you know, right. as much as we like to think that the war on drug took a turn, it really has not taken a turn. And especially with the fact that we're still looking at the same numbers. It's about 70 percent brown and black people being arrested for something that is now legal in over half the states in the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So. So, OK, 1997, um, January, Barry McCaffrey, who was in the drug czar, came out with a statement saying there's not a shred of evidence for its use for medical purposes. And I, was, of course, was very irate because I had been using it for seven years at that stage. So I sat down, wrote him a letter, explained to him my use, sent it to him. I also took that same letter, re-edited it a bit, removed the salutation, sent it to the Hartford Courant, which is the largest newspaper in Connecticut, at the time the third largest in the whole of New England. And the Hartford Courant, took my essay, put it on the front page of the Sunday editorial section. Yep. And that started me on the path of my advocacy. Because you can imagine when this first came out, all three network TV stations, there was Fox was the fourth at the time. They didn't have much of a news network then. The other three, ABC, NBC, and uh, CBS, came to my home, interviewed me, put me on this evening news, showing them my stash, because of course this was the great controversy. People were 
my friends were very apprehensive from their concerned about my well-being. Well, I might be busted by the police. I might be fired from my job. My mother was crying. You have to remember, in 1997, my father wouldn't talk to me. And now, 25 years later, look where we are. <laughs> I know. But, you know, in some ways, we seem like we've come a long way. And we have. But we really haven't gotten anywhere because I think for a person to be arrested today, and there was probably a person arrested almost every you know, two minutes in the country for some sort of cannabis violation. It's ridiculous that we are making, we, we, we had an industry that collected $25 billion in revenue in 1921, sorry, in 2021, and $25 billion worth of legal cannabis was sold in the United States, along with probably another 45 to $50 billion sold in the, in the dark and, and gray market, yet we still have people being arrested today. I, it, it's just, it, it baffles my mind, but I'm glad that, you know, you've been on this path. I mean, what are some of the objections or, uh, or stigmas that you still find surrounding medical cannabis? Are you still finding people that are pushing back? Uh, in my personal life, I have to say no. Um, I, the people I usually um, associate with are educated and enlightened, let's say. Um, but yeah, there's still people out there where if you tell them that you, are a medical marijuana patient, there's still a stigma involved, even in the state of Connecticut. But now that in the state of Connecticut, it's legal recreationally as well. I think the stigma has certainly decreased appreciably. I, I no longer. I believe, I believe you and I, you and I testified before a committee in uh, Connecticut, did we not? Back in was ninety two. Two thousand six. Two thousand six. Yeah. Okay. Yep. You came. I think you were living in New York City at the time. Yes. All right. You, and it was actually a, a press conference before the the public hearing. And you testified the um, you gave your your testimony to the press conference. Right after that, you left, went back to New York. I came on and, and gave my testimony at the press conference. Then a day or two later was the actual public testimony where I also testified in person. So. That's great. Absolutely. You know, it's it's been it's been a crazy journey. I I like you started down that path of advocacy in about 90 and 2002 and uh, really 2001 and a half and um, have never looked back. I mean, I've always been tried to speak out and advocate for those who had need to have efficacious access to an efficacious medication and still fighting that struggle till today. I mean, because you would think that by now when the fact of, that we know that in the last mm, 10 years, there's been over 35,000 peer-reviewed published documents by some people in the medical community. In the last year alone, well over 3,500 brand new peer-reviewed published documents on the efficaciousness of cannabis, yet we still fight that stupid idea that, oh, it has no medical use, right? In some people's mind, yes, of course. Absolutely. Tell me a little about your book, Mindful Marijuana Smoking, Health Tips for Cannabis Smokers. All right. Well, there was always uh, being very health conscious, you know, my diet, exercise, as you also observe. Um, it seemed very, very contradictory that I still enjoyed smoking. And over, over the course of years before medical became legalized, that was the only way it was available anyway, was to smoke. No one really had access to tinctures and, and salves and, and sprays and so forth. I still enjoy smoking more than any other method. And that was like um, a contradiction, but I, I sought ways of trying to 
reduce the health risk because there's no question smoking anything and vaping as well, smoking or vaping anything is not the most healthful practice in one's life. There are ways of reducing those risks. And I sought those ways over the course of many years. I developed my own protocols, my own techniques, and um, began, I wrote a few articles about it. One was in a medical marijuana journal. It was called uh, Treating Yourself. It's no longer in publication, but at the time it was very well known within the medical marijuana community internationally. It was the first article I wrote on the subject of t 10 tips, 10 techniques, um, refined it, re-edited it, came out in, in a holistic health magazine. At, which was published out of Massachusetts, not a medical marijuana magazine. And so over the course of the years, I began compiling more notes on it, reading more studies on it, decided it was time for a book, and um, wrote that book, published three months, four months ago. And um, I can give you, like, every chapter, it's 10 chapters, every chapter is a different health tip. Give me a few. Let's talk about sure. a couple. Yeah, I'll give you. Um, Before you do that, where can people get the book? Go ahead, and shout, do a shout out. Where can they go get it? Is it on Amazon? Okay, it's available on any online bookseller. Put it right okay. there in the middle. Yeah, that shameless plug. There you go. Any online bookseller can get it right now. All right. Yeah, it's on Amazon. Also, um, you can get the ebook and the audio book on Amazon. Okay, I highly recommend the audio book. I, I did not narrate it. The publisher got a narrator that you know um, of their choice, and I certainly agree with it. And I love his narration. So, if you happen to be an audiobook fan, by all means, I recommend the audiobook. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, okay. So, I'll I'll try to go through as quickly as possible. You know, very briefly, I'll give you eight tips. Okay, one is how to inhale. You think that that's ridiculous, but it's actually the most important one. The second is how to ignite your cannabis, the ignition system. The third is the use of rolling papers and joints. Fourth is how to, how to optimize and maximize the benefits, reduce the risk of pipes. Water pipes is next. Vaporizers, I'm talking about herbal vaporizers, not oil vaporizers. And then how to, how to make sure that the cannabis itself is pure not tainted with all kinds of pesticides and so forth. How to preserve the potency, because the more potent it is, the less you need to smoke. The less you smoke, the better off you'll be. <laughs> okay? And finally, um, of the, the tips, how to prevent tooth decay, because when you smoke, you parch your mouth and you cause... If, if, if you don't... And your saliva dries up because of cannabis, not even smoking alone. If you consume cannabis... Even by ingestion of um, eating, it still dries out your salivary glands, and that causes bad breath, gum disease, and tooth decay. So, okay, so those are the, the list. I'll start with the first one, which is the most important, which is the easiest, because it, you don't have to do anything more than what you've already been doing. In fact, you need to do something less, and that is to not hold the hit. You breathe in. Breathe out as though we were normally breathing. It's been actually scientifically proven in the 1990s. There were several <laughs> studies proving that you don't have to hold the hit in because cannabinoids and terpenes are fat soluble. 
they are immediately absorbed by the alveoli and the cilia, the delicate inner linings of the lungs. If you hold it in any longer than just inhaling and then exhaling, the only thing more that gets absorbed is tar. All right? And people never believe me when I tell them this. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. I explain to them, well, take two portions of your stash. Have one portion smoke it your same way as you always do, holding it in. And then wait a day, clear your head. That's how long I need to take. Then try the other portion. Try it just inhaling and exhaling as though you were not smoking. And everyone finds, to their surprise, that they get just as high or they get just as much relief. Okay? So that's very important. If cigarette smokers held it in on every inhale, (laughs) they'd all be dead. But they don't do that either. They may take a long, long hit, you know, draw and a draw, but they let it out immediately. So that's number one. Okay. Number two, the ignition system. No one seems to realize how the worst part of smoking is not smoking. The most harmful part is not the marijuana. But the ignition system, the matches or the lighter that people use, which they usually suck in on the first on the first ignition of the marijuana. Now, if you're smoking a joint, you only need to ignite it once. When you smoke a pipe, usually the pipe goes out. You're using several ignitions, okay? The, the butane fumes from a lighter, though even worse than inhaling the exhaust of a burning butane, is when it's not been um, combusted, just the fumes themselves, you can, if you used a lighter and just clicked on the little tab without igniting it, that's actually the most toxic form of the butanes possible. It's a very, very faint smell, but it's very, very highly toxic. Little kitties do it intentionally to get high and also to get sick and destroying all kinds of cells in their lungs and their brains. Okay. Even even worse than the, than the butane fumes. And remember, when you look on any lighter, it says, warning, do not ignite next to face. But that's exactly where people do it when they light their joints. They put it right there. One could light a joint, like far away, like you have your joint in one hand and the, and the butane lighter in the other. That's fine. You're not going to be inhaling those fumes, okay? But no one does it that way. Cigarette smokers never either. So you want to avoid butane. Also, when you're smoking a pipe, you can't really do it well with a butane lighter because you can't turn it upside down. It goes out. You can't turn it It'll burn your fingers too. Sorry? It'll burn your fingers too. Right, right. The flame goes up. You turn it sideways, the flame goes up, not into the pipe. So rather than butane fumes, a piezo lighter, also called torch lighters, you can see the torch. I'm turning it upside down, and it's still. I, I got to do it against the dark background. Hold on. Right. Okay. You can see that's still working. So if you're going to use a pipe, you want to use a piezo lighter, also called a torch lighter. Also good about it is there's no flint. It's so-called flint. It's actually ferrocerodium, and it causes us when you flick that little flick of a, let's say a bick, it causes a minute cloud, dust cloud of that, that, that flint. 
and you're actually inhaling it if you're putting it close to your mouth, obviously. These things are using quartz lighters, so you don't have that same toxic effect from the flint. But even better, this is a fairly new invention, is... Gotcha. Okay. Electronic lighters, also called USB lighters, Tesla lighters, arc lighters. Okay. I'm going to put it, go right up close to the uh, camera. Hold on. Absolutely. Coil. You can see that? All yep. right. It's like a star. Yep. Okay. That, there's no fumes from an electronic lighter. And you can use that for igniting, especially your pipe. Because the pipe is going to be using, you know, needing several ignitions. So very important to do that. However, these things, they costly, $20 or $30. They don't last very long. You're left with a piece of junk because you can't really replace the battery. I developed my technique years ago. I use a candle and toothpicks, flat toothpicks, not round toothpicks. I light the candle with my, all right, with my arc lighter, Tesla lighter. And then, especially for, for pipes, I keep it, I keep the candle far away from me, arm length, use toothpicks, all right, light the toothpick in the candle, light the pipe with the toothpick. And all of this is far away from me. So I'm not inhaling it because if I'm smelling it, I'm inhaling it, right? So this is how I developed my technique of not having to be, not needing to inhale fumes from the ignition system, all right? Here's that. Okay, pipes. This is my favorite pipe, all right? It's segmented, long pipe. The farther away you're lighting the bowl from you, the farther away you're inhaling any fumes from the pipe, from the matches or from the lighter. That's very important, okay? Also, the distance it goes along the stem, it's cooled. The smoke, there's two bad things about smoke. It's hot and it's dry. Besides the toxic things that it, are carried through it. And at least this way, it's no longer hot. And when people share my pipe with me, they don't feel it because they're not, they're used to feeling something hot in their, in their mouth, in their throat. They don't feel that. And everyone takes in too much. I tell them, stop, you're, you're inhaling too much. And they always end up coughing because they take so much, they don't feel it, okay? So that's a very important technique. Now, you can find these easily enough in head shops, like, you know, these, but these are, you can't clean them, uh, like piece pipes, okay? You can't clean the inside once it's stuffed, so you have to go for a segmented one. So that's important. And short stem pipes, you practically, you know, you're probably putting the whole thing in your mouth. You might as well forget about the stem. So it needs to be a long stem pipe. Joints, you're adding the cigarette paper, the rolling paper into it. You, know, you put it in the hand, you got a nice pack of rolling papers. Do you really want to put that into your lungs? Very important thing is rolling papers are treated. Most of them are treated 
with potassium nitrate, which regulates the burn rate. The potassium nitrate indeed is as toxic as it sounds, the nitrate part. You can get organically grown ones, which then emit the potassium nitrate. And some, usually when they're labeled organic, they're not USDA organically grown because USDA doesn't ordain that onto uh, fibers, only food, okay? But usually they're hemp when it's organically grown. So that'd be one thing to do. You don't want bleached because the chlorine bleach residue can turn to chlorine fumes when it's ignited. It's very, very, of course, yes, papers are very small, part of the joint, and the chlorine residue of, of the bleaching process is a very small part of the paper, but nevertheless, chlor chloride, chlorine gas was used in the World War I trenches during, you know, in warfare right. as, as a gas to kill people. So you don't want that on your rolling papers. You want organic rolling papers, okay? If you use a joint, by all means, you want to use a um, a, um, a cigarette lighter. Keep it away from you, just as though it were the stem of a pipe, or and or use also what are called little tips, where they you can buy them or you can make them yourself. What I what I use is um, I find it here. I don't see it on my desk. It's disappeared on me. But I, I had a straws, paper straws, and I use that to insert into the rolling paper so it's a it's called a crutch okay so it extends the tip away from you so you don't have to burn your lips on the roach okay so that's why i use either a cigarette holder or or rolling tips so you're not gonna have it too close to your nose to inhale that either okay so that would be a very important part of resorting when you when you're going to use um rolling papers is use organic rolling papers where possible. You can find them if you search easily enough. And to use either a, um, that little smoking tip or to use a cigarette holder, okay? Um, beyond other pipes, water pipes. Everyone loves water pipes. Love the sound of the bubbles. They're also called bongs when they're large, okay? Bubblers when they're small handheld. We think that they add moisture to the smoke. They don't, all right? They cool the smoke, but they don't add moisture to the smoke. And that's very important. It does cool the smoke, just like smoking with a long stem pipe cools the smoke. However, cannabinoids and terpenes end up getting filtered in the water. Just like when you, if you use a water pipe and you dump the water after you use it, it stinks. And you say, wow. It's a good thing that I have that in the water and dump it down the sink. Didn't end up in my lungs. And that's tar and the ash and all the other toxic part that are getting filtered by in the water takes out from the bubbles. Okay. But the water also captures cannabinoids. So you end up smoking more and you probably, we don't know scientifically the actual ratios but you end up actually um, the balance of the advantage of capturing the, the tar and the, and the ash in the water is probably offset by the fact you have to smoke more of the, of the cannabis anyway, okay? Plus, if you use a water pipe, you should always dry it thoroughly between use because otherwise it become a breeding ground for bacteria. And, 
people have transmitted tuberculosis to other people in their household who share the same water pipe. All right. And this doesn't happen to many people of, of our Western countries, but the third world countries, especially when they're immigrants in our own countries, let's say the United States, Australia and England, there've been found cases of tuberculosis when there was just family or friends sharing a water pipe, smoking cannabis with it. Okay. So by all means, dry the water pipe. Herbal vaporizers, great improvement over, over smoking, vaping over smoking. But we're talking about herbal vaporizers. Oil vape is a different story. The cheaper forms of oil vaping are extracted using solvents. It could be butane. They can be propane. Those are going to be, the solvents are going to be um, residue left in the oil, the cannabis oil. If they're the um, more high-end and usually in the medical, um, um, available medical marijuana dispensaries, the latest technique is carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide residue doesn't harm you. It's in the oil. And also most um, a new technique is using alcohol, ethyl alcohol. So those are good. But when you have the oil, then if you don't have any of the residue from the solvents in the extraction process, you end up, most oils then have solvents added in order to thin the oil so that it can be turned into vapor. Those solvents include usually propylene glycol, PG for short. Sometimes it's polyethylene glycol. It's called PEG for short. Propylene glycol and polyethylene glycol are very closely related to the same chemical family as polypropylene glycol, which is antifreeze, which is poisonous. Okay. Now, the FDA ordains propylene glycol, PG, as being safe in small quantities to eat. It's used in a lot of food products that you buy off the shelf of a supermarket. So an emulsifier. Also, same thing with PEG, the DEA ordains it safe to eat. But what's safe to eat is not necessarily safe to smoke because what is safe in your stomach is not necessarily safe in your lungs, okay? So for that reason, be very cautious using oil oil-based vaporizers, use herbal vaporizers, just the cannabis. Unless unless you know where it comes from. Exactly so. Unless you know that they're using carbon dioxide in the extraction process. Right. Okay. And and then again, most of the super critical CO2 that you used, you know, it has a leach off a temperature of about 105, 110 degrees. It can be reduced down to zero parts per billion. It can go uh, down And the right. same thing when it comes to even cryoethanol, they can be reduced down to parts per billion. However, you know, we don't know, you don't sometimes know exactly who's processing what you're using. Yep. Right. Right. Okay. So more tips. Okay. Move on. All right. Seeking purity. Well, there's herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, fungus, when there's not used fungicides, heavy metals, PGR, plant growth regulators, are all used in growing marijuana in the black market, in the gray market, and sometimes also corporate cannabis, you know, the so-called white, the legal market, okay? 
and all these things, you'd think that smoke is light and airy and that the combustion process would destroy these residues left over in the plant. Actually, it's been found that the combustion process increases the toxicity of these and sometimes causes them to combine with other elements, other toxic pesticides or fungicides, and make a third, even more toxic substance. For instance, the most, the most notorious is the use of myclobutanol, which is a fungicide. Whenever cannabis is grown indoors, there's always a high risk of fungus, of mold, okay? And this very commonly used fungicide is mycobutanol. Mycobutanol, combusted in the cannabis, produces hydrogen cyanide, which is what's used to execute death row inmates, one of the gases, okay? So by all means, you need to know the purity of your herb. And that's part of the reason why, at least in most states right now, especially where things are sold under state regulation, they're required to give you a COA, a certificate of analysis, where you should be able to look at and take a look and see what are those other chemicals that they are putting in your cannabis. Very short list. They don't list much on it. And for instance, in the state of Connecticut, they do list the, um, we're talking about the fungus, not the fungicides. They do list the, the units of fungus per microgram. And it, just as an instance, since I'm from Connecticut, I know exactly what goes on. Originally, they were limiting it to 1,000 units per microgram as legal limit. And anything more than that couldn't be sold to patients. The state of Massachusetts has its limit as 10,000. The manufacturers, the four growers in Connecticut, could not meet that stringent 1,000 per unit per microgram as the maximum mold limit. So they got the state of Connecticut, the regulators of the program, to lift the limit to 100,000, 10 times more than Massachusetts permits, okay? So, okay, there's all of those things. PGRs, plant growth regulators, any hydroponic formula that's not organic is PGRs. And anything grown indoors, I'd say probably 90% of indoor growth is hydroponic rather than soil. PGRs are like steroids for plants. And that all gets, that residue ends up in the, in the plant that we smoke and ends up in the smoke, okay? So you want to avoid that by all means where possible, where we're legal and we're practical, grow your own or seek sources that guarantee their own purity. The state of California ahead of us, any other state right now has instituted only a year ago an organic certification program. There have been third party programs in various Northwest states, you know, Northwestern, Washington, Oregon, California, third party certifies. But finally the state itself has, has, instituted program where they just like the 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 USDA has organic for food in the United States California has organic certification for cannabis until we have that in Connecticut which is where I happen to live I've been growing it myself because I know I can grow it organically grown and it's been legal for the past two years now year and a half in Connecticut for patients it'll be legal in another half a year for everyone else to grow your own so 
That's great. And you know, what what other tips do you have for like you know exactly what not the choosing products, choosing the type or the cultivar? Do you do you have any uh, particular cultivars that you favor? Well, um, no, I don't. I'll tell you why. Because until it was legalized here in Connecticut, 2012, and we only had the dispensaries being able to actually sell a product was 2014. I never knew what I was getting, right? I had a friend who grew it for me organically for many years. I was very fortunate, but he never was able to really tell me what cultivar it was. And I had no idea. And even to this day in in the dispensaries in Connecticut, they tell you it's this, they tell you it's that. You never really know. They make up names. The names that the Connecticut dispensaries call it is not the same as the street names. The street names, there's no real, you know, way of knowing exactly is that it so i don't have one <laughs> do you <laughs> um you know i look at the coas and try to you know uh consider what the terpene profile is and what the ratios of different cannabinoids are i believe in in a full spectrum uh uh type of of cannabis that i prefer to use that has everything in it as far as from THC to CBD to CBC to CBG to all of the variants and even some of the acid forms. So I prefer that all be part of the same profile that I actually consume. And then, because uh, I do have my own product line out in Massachusetts right now, we are are uh, done fully with supercritical CO2. Um, we use a full spectrum extraction that we don't then put any polyglycol in. Um, oh, great. Yeah. So, and, and I actually go back and reformulate with additional hemp-based terpenes, not botanical terpenes, because I don't believe in, if I'm not going to smoke a grape, then why would I have it in my vape pen? So um, uh, uh, I, I look for more of what the formulation is rather than the cultivar. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And sometimes, you know, if, if I don't, if I can't find exactly what I'm looking for, I can combine two different strains or three different strains together. And mm-hmm. that'll boost maybe, maybe even the berry, uh, the beta carolophylline, or, uh, you know, I try to, depending on the time of the day, I go for different terpenes that elicit a particular response. Okay. See, I haven't been able to really. There was one particular cultivar I found I really liked very much. I'm talking about for the head high. Right. And, and of course, that was only available that's, that season. Correct. Because you know, every growth cycle, it changes. Yeah. And then so finally, it was available now from the same one of the four grow labs, the same name. So I went out and got that. It had nothing at all to do with the one from less than a year before. Right. <laughs> so, right. right. It's kind of a pick and choose. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah, for sure. So, so now, why do you how do you feel the what do you feel about the regulated cannabis market and is it progressing? What needs to be improved, let's say, in the state of Connecticut? Well, state of Connecticut is going through a lot of transitions right now because they're slowly entering into the legal recreational market. And at this stage, everyone I know is growing it themselves, and this is now our a gray market where we're all, we legally we can all just give it away. And I've been giving it away. And I only grew older flowers. I started growing last summer and then this summer. Four plants altogether, two plants at a time. Older flowers only needed nine weeks of growth. They're smaller. 
not as potent. I also kept them small intentionally because as it grew, I buried it into soil halfway up the stem to keep it short. Okay. And despite my only having four plants last summer and four plants this summer, I had still plenty to give away. Gotcha. And I even had friends I gave it to who wanted to pay me for it. I said, no, it's not legal. Right. <laughs> you know, well, the point is everybody I know is growing it and we're all just giving it away to each other because we can't legally sell it anyway, nor do we want to. So when the legal market finally starts selling, which is not going to be for a while still because of all the regulations and the licensing, you know, and then, and then have to get the actual town to, to prove the zoning and all that. Until then, everyone is having a great time just giving away to each other. When it finally is available in the shops, I'll be the first one to go knocking on the shop store for the recreational, just for the pleasure of it, just like I used to shop at the, at the medicinal stores. Problem with Connecticut is probably you know nationwide as an example. Originally, Connecticut, of the 18 dispensaries, medical marijuana dispensaries, that are still operating in Connecticut now. Originally, 17 of them were independently owned, mom-and-pop type stores. The pharmacist usually was the one who, who owned the store. 17 of the 18 have all been bought out. Well, one of them started out being from Quarterly, which is a Massachusetts-based company. But 16 of the others, which started out independent, have all been bought out and all owned by multi-state corporations, out-of-state corporations. So we only have one left that's a mom-and-pop store. When recreational is here now, in another few months, maybe half a year if we're lucky, it's going to be the same thing. It's all out-of-state corporations are the ones who are going to be selling it in Connecticut. It's very, very strange that Connecticut not only seemed to allow it all to happen, but they seem to have encouraged it. You know, the DCP, you know, the Department of Consumer Protection, which oversees the medical marijuana program. The same thing is true when the four grow labs that Connecticut licensed, of the four, originally three were Connecticut-based. Only one was out of state, which was Corley, Massachusetts. The other three have all been bought out by also multi-state, you know, out-of-state corporations. So it's now called corporate cannabis, right? right? Big cannabis. And I personally, most of my food I eat is locally grown and or organically grown. And so I'm going to stick the same way with cannabis. I'm going to still go with my local and organically grown cannabis, even when it's available in the marketplace for recreational use. Don't you think that maybe the state ought to incorporate more locally grown facilities <clears throat> and, and local ownership? When recreational shops open, they will be expanding the, the sources, yes. But even then, there's supposed to have been the social equity program. This has been you know, a problem nationwide where it's supposed to be where people who were um, victims of the war on drugs were, would be able to have um, priority in getting licenses to sell it, to grow it, to deliver it. And even then that's proved a big failure because in order to have enough money 
to start a store, a retail outlet. You had to partner with some other corporation. And then the licenses that Connecticut were, had um, to apply for a license, it was $500 just for the application fee. But Connecticut didn't set any limit for how many times an individual or a company could apply. So each individual, okay, they invested $500 in one application. That's what they could afford. A corporation could invest in dozens, if not a hundred applications to guarantee that they'll get one of the permits. Right. So in right now it's, it's a big mess. It's in turmoil and it's probably going to end up the way New York city right now is going, where there's a huge gray market. And when the legal shops open the licensed ones, they're not going to have much of a market left. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, we're, we're going to be a while in shorting this out before anything happens. Because again, you know, even the regulations that we have right now where, you know, you can't cross state lines with cannabis and, and that's going to have to change eventually if we want to be able to make sure we get quality product and not just people who stepped into the game to make money off of those who are looking for quality product. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I, I always seek quality over quantity in that case. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, well, the book is called Mindful Marijuana Smoking, Health Tips for Cannabis Smokers by Mr. Mark Bronstein. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today, Mark. I, I'd say it's, uh, I'm glad. Are you doing well? Are you feeling well? I feel great. Thank you. That's good. That's super. And I hope you stay that way. You always have a home here whenever you want to chat. And, you know, we'll keep plugging your book, plugging away at it. And I want you to make sure you reach out and get it. Give them an idea one more time where they can go to get it. You can get it on Amazon and anywhere, any other. Any online, online bookseller will sell that book. Yes. Okay. For sure. The only reason for Amazon is because they also sell the ebook and the audiobook. And I highly recommend the audiobook. There you go. That's coming right from the author himself. So maybe you ought to go pick up a copy of it. I'm going to say thank you again, sir, for being a part of the show today. Let's be blunt with Montel. Make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.